It's all so complex and complicated. It feels so ominous. Horsemen? Seals? The mark? How did the early church understand it all, anyways? I don't know what to focus on or watch for. It feels like everything could be a sign, especially these days. Are we living in the end times right now? Is it about the future? Or maybe it's already happened and I missed it. What's God trying to show us? How do we know what's real and what's made up by Hollywood? Here's what I do know. I know that Jesus is faithful. His plan and God's timing are perfect. And I know what matters most is that in the end, he wins. Jesus wins. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. Welcome back to the book of Revelation. No matter where you're joining us today, so glad you're with us. Okay, I don't know what type of family you grew up in, but um, my grandparents had one of those rooms you were not allowed in. It was the front room, and I know I'm dating myself a little bit here, but it had the china in it, and all of the couches and chairs were covered in plastic. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? But lots of us know. And if you know what I'm talking about, you also realize there was probably fruit made of wax or some type of marble. Anyway, if you walked into that room without permission, it was trouble because that was sort of, you can't go in there. You only went in at Christmas and it was really uncomfortable and I tried eating the fruit and that was really weird because it was wax. And then when you sat down, you made all these weird noises on the plastic guarding the furniture. So it was uncomfortable, it wasn't friendly, it wasn't accessible and you always thought you were gonna get in trouble. That's how so many Christians view the book of Revelation. It's weird, it makes weird noises when you sit on it. You hardly go in it. You don't know what to do when you're in there and you just want to get out because it's uncomfortable. But actually the book of Revelation is written like a kitchen table. You need to be in it all the time. It's where you debate and struggle and laugh and cry together and just do life together. Why? Because the book of Revelation is given to us to teach us how to do everyday normal Christian life in normal and difficult times. And listen, we all know this has been a really dangerous week. I mean, I'm taping this today. I have no clue by Sunday what will have happened between Russia and the Ukraine, Europe and the world. But here's the whole point. The book of Revelation is given to us so we can have hope and be faithful in the middle of everyday normal life. Now, we're going to begin today to descend and finish off this amazing, hard, mind-changing, very challenging, hope-inspiring series and, and I want to start with two verses that are critical to keep us going well between the first and second coming of Jesus. They help just adjust expectations, and they give us hope, and they also inspire us not to give in. One is Re Revelation 13.10. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. That's you if you're a Christian. And the next one comes out of Revelation 18.1. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Remember that. Come out of her, my people, so you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. Okay, now we're getting ready for Easter. Can you imagine that? So we're not going to be able to go through every single passage in the book of Revelation. So this is the place where I'm going to, in an overall way, move from chapter 15 to 18. And I love what Eugene Peterson called this section, and it goes into 19 and 20 a little bit more. But this he called is God's last word 
on judgment. Now, really, this is working out of where we ended up last week, and this whole section also is a cry of the church that has struggled for 2,000 years. Remember Revelation 6.10? How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then the answer is now started to be given in Revelation 15.1. The wrath of God is finished. God is bringing judgment in part now. We learned that earlier in the series. And then there's a full and final judgment coming where all evil, all evil, all evil will be eternally removed. Now, it's not a mistake that John has given that little phrase, it is finished. Why? Because this moves us back to Good Friday when Jesus was taking on the sin of the world and dealing with Satan and cried out in victory, it is finished. All that he had worked for on behalf of the Father happened. And so when we read it here, we are reminded the coming judgment of God to finish off evil is going to be finished and Jesus wins. Again, whether we're comfortable or not, the wrath of God is real, it's just, it's needed, and it's on its way. I love when Leon Morris once just said, the wrath of God is God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. And we all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But oh, Remember, God defines what evil is, not us. So yes, chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, and even 19, part of 20, are about God's coming judgment. But actually, these passages specifically are incredibly helpful for us living between the first and second coming of Jesus. Let me break it down like this. If chapter 11 through 13 was about Satan and his empowerment of those two evil beasts from the sea and from the earth, and chapter 14 last week was that huge, oh my goodness, thank you, God, that you lifted our, our eyes up to see Jesus wins, then chapter 15 through 18 is where the beasts now take center stage. We actually see what they are more clearly, but we also see how they lose. Remember, again, as we've learned, we're living between the first and second coming of Jesus, and all Christians have lived in the belly of the beast in some form. Now, the most common name in the book of Revelation for the fusion of the dragon and these wicked uh, beasts is, is one city name. It's Babylon. Let me read it like this, Revelation 15, 13. Uh, then the angel carried me away in the Holy Spirit, into a wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And, and, and the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and, and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she held up a golden cup in her hand filled with wicked things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great was the mother of prostitutes, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. Oh my goodness, what a terrifying, disgusting, evil image that is so incredibly helpful. So she is called the mother, not just of historic Babylon, but many, many, many Babylons. She is called this whore-like figure that keeps having evil children that keep becoming the beast time and time again over history. And this is where all the dots start getting connected for us. See, to understand the sexual, political, military, demonic image, we need to be reminded or discover that Babylon, both literal Babylon and this one, have all of its starting places in one little point. It all starts 
in Genesis at the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11.1. Now the whole earth had one language and one common speech, and the people moved eastward and they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now Shinar is Mesopotamia, which we would call Iraq and Iran today, and that's actually where literally Babylon would be built. Now, this is what our ancestors, as one voice said, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Okay, hold on with me. This is going to make sense. This shows us this is a human project, but it's not urban development or evolution. It's a global project where all of humanity gathers together and builds a community and the creator is removed and those in his image, the created, now take center stage. And they declared with absolute confidence and trust that the lie of Satan, we can be like God, is true, it's needed, it needs to be embraced. Adam and Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit now takes on the form of a city whose affinity, whose magnetic pull, whose slogan was, no God here, just established, enlightened, in control, human beings being like God. And the great human project of unbelief finds its unity, not just in a city, but in a tower. Now, this is really striking. The word tower in Hebrew is used throughout the Old Testament later to mean human strength and human pride. So the spiritual intentions of our ancestors is found in this next declaration. Their vision statement, their mission statement, their manifesto, their creed is, we will reach the heavens. We will peak in the heavens or we will rival the heavens. So in other words, human beings declare, we're going to invent something called religion. Since we're blocked from Eden in God's presence, we'll force ourselves up into heaven. This is power and spiritual wisdom, notice, coming from the bottom up, not heaven down. And it's the human communal cry, it's the clay saying to the potter, the created saying to the creator, you're dismissed now, thanks so much, we don't need you anymore because we're going to make a name for ourselves. So you got religion and now fame and reputation, immortality, pride and glory. And then they declared, oh, and we're not going to be scattered across the whole face of the earth. We need security, and we need to be less vulnerable, and, and we don't think we can trust you anymore. See, remember, what did God say to Adam and Eve after they left Eden? You are to multiply, and you are supposed to what? Fill the earth. He said that even pre-fall. Now, do you catch it? They go, no, we're going to stay in one place together. So here's the first connection uh, for all of us. This is where religion is invented. I get to access the heavens by what I do. This is where power is consolidated. This is where military might is invented. This is where created things say, we now are going to use politics and military stuff and religion and spirituality to actually be like God, inspired by the lie of the serpent, the dragon. Well, verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The tower was so far away from heaven, he had to come down and see it, which should give us pause. But what he says next is pretty interesting. God says, if as one people, speaking the same language, they've begun to do this. 
then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So come, God says, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, or Babel, because the Lord confused their languages of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So Babel means confusion, but it actually is the root word for the name or the city and the empire called Babylon, which means city of God or gate of God. Now, throughout the whole Bible from that moment forward, this becomes sort of a, a sign, a signal for any city that is godless, any city that produces uh, people that attack the followers of God, a city that loves sin, a city that loves the occult, a city that's in love with wealth over people and hungers and enjoys war. So Babel is the roots of Babylon. And then like we learned two weeks ago, all the great military, political, religious movements since are the beasts of the earth in the sea in many forms. So Nineveh, yep, Tyre, literal Babylon, Persia, Greece, even God's city, Jerusalem at points, becomes a version of Babylon. Maybe you don't know this, but when Jesus was about to be executed, the high priest in a moment of rage and sin, he who represented the true living God to the Jewish people, actually showed how Jerusalem had taken the form of the beast. Because, of course, God is king of the Jews, right? Well, it says in John 19, 15, when they were talking, talking about Jesus, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Not only did John have this event in mind when he was being inspired to write this, but God's city had become this before. God's people had become this before, all the way back in the 8th century during the time of Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 122, see how the faithful city, that's Jerusalem, had become a prostitute. She once was full of justice and righteousness, used to dwell in her, but now just murderers. Now in John's day, Rome was the current version of Babylon. And when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Revelation, it's so obvious. You can read this in Revelation 17.9. This calls for, uh, for a mind with the wisdom, the seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. Well, I don't know if you know this. You can go to Rome today. Rome is literally built on seven hills. So for John, Nero and the other emperors and the imperial Rome experience are the fulfillment, are the fusion of the dragon and the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, political, military power, formal religion, spirituality, all tied together. But the mistake many Christians have made as they've read Revelation since that moment is they keep believing that Babylon must come now from Rome. No. <laughs> Just like Babel, Babylon is a series of movements and movements. So here's when it gets real close to home. The question is, in any time period, including at the very end, are there ways for Christians to know with certainty where Babylon is and if we're living in it? Yes. I love when also Eugene Peterson wrote these words. He said, the great whore symbol is actually our everyday experience and actually is a very nice city to live in. The woman and the scarlet beast on which she sits compromises the streets that actually we walk all the time and the shops where we buy our flowers and vegetables as we make small talk with the owner. Flannery O'Connor in a question and answer period she was asked, why do you, in your, your novels and books, create such bizarre characters? She replied, well, it's for near-blind people. For near-blind people, you have to actually draw very large, simple pictures. 
See, the great whore is one of these simple, large pictures for us. It is an image that can bring to never again to be forgotten awareness of the powerful, seductive presence of those things that want to obstruct and subvert your worship of the slain and risen lamb. So again, for many of us who are just trying to be everyday followers of Jesus, we're actually near blind. And we might not even know that we're near blind. And we want to be faithful to Jesus, and we're not sure where the beasts are or where this whore symbol is. So, so what do we do? Well, the answer is if you read chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, you can see what Babylon is very quickly. Now, the good news is these chapters, all the way into 19, tell us that Babylon is going to be destroyed and judged and wiped out. But it was my friend Daryl Johnson that outlined, actually, before you get to that, there are seven experiences that point to Babylon, and you'll know you're living in Babylon when you see, feel, experience, or participate in one, a few, or actually all of these things. So, let's just do this little journey together. You know when Babylon is around, first and foremost, <laughs> when the true living God is removed from the center of family, city, culture, or country. Listen to what this whore-like finger says in Revelation 18.7. In her heart she boasts, I sit as, enthroned as queen. I'm not a window. I'm never going to mourn. See, when God is not called upon, when God is no longer at the center of the moral decisions of a nation, when God is no longer the foundation of law or human value, when human beings replace God with human achievement, human understanding, even good things, science, philosophy, psychology, art, architecture, fashion, fill in the blank. When things, even good things, have more authority than God, his character, and his word, we're back to Babel, just like that. Here's how Paul said it in Romans 1.25. A human beings exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Well, the second sign that Babel or Babylon is around is sensuality. Revelation 17.2, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. The inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. You know Babylon is around when sex and sexuality is defined, affirmed, and practiced without the permissions and boundaries of God, as affirmed by God himself and his son Jesus and the scriptures he's authored. Again, sorry to keep quoting him, but I love this. Eugene Peterson powerfully wrote this about sensuality. He said the bride, which by the way is the church in the New Testament, is a sexual metaphor just like the whore, but it sh shows us this contrast. For the whore, sex is the service of commerce. Uh, bride sex is devoted to love. Uh, for, whore, for the whore, sex is contract. For the bride, sex is a lifelong commitment. For the whore, sex is a calculation. For the bride, sex is an offering. Whore worship is a matter of moments and occasions. Bride worship gathers every part into life into union. Whore worship is based on the principle of attraction and pleasure. Bride worship is for better or worse, sickness or health, till death do us part. Bride worship is always at an immediate disadvantage in competition with whore worship. For whore worship is indulgent and lustful, while bride worship is sacrificial and faithful. That is why whore worship is such a contentious threat to bride worship. So you've got God being removed, and you've got sensuality without boundary. And then the next group of verses get really close to home. And you know when Babylon is around. Everyone ready? 
when luxury and materialism is at the heartbeat of a culture. Or as another person said, when people begin to start worshiping products. Listen to what people will mourn when Babylon leaves. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made from ivory and costly wood, bronze and iron and marble and cargoes of cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and carriages and humans being sold as slaves. They will see the fruit you have longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and all your splendor has vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her. I don't think I need to preach a whole sermon on this. The love of stuff, the love of luxury, the role of beauty, the role of material things, and when it started to be connected to someone's value, someone's identity, someone's personal value or communal value, connected to power, how we even get these things. Now, many of these items above are not evil, but the love of them, the centering of them, the worshiping of them, the valuing of them, how they're made, oh, that all matters. Remember, Jesus taught us that money was not evil. It's the love of money that's evil and the root of all evil, right? It's the love, well, that's what this is. Wouldn't you say that our culture worships luxury? Now, the fourth sign of Babylon is injustice. Uh, Did you catch it as I just read that? In the middle of GDP and Gucci and Louis Vuitton and Air Jordan 2 OGs, the human toll is centered out When human beings are no longer treated as holy, when human beings are not treated with dignity, when human beings are exploited, slavery, you know the whore is around. Uh, Did you catch it? I didn't the first two or three readings. Did you notice in the list I just read that human beings are mentioned after animals, after luxury, after products? See, the highest part of creation is the human being made in the image of God. But you know Babylon is around, and Babylon always has this perspective that human beings are the last thing and worth the least. Like I shared earlier in our Philemon series, uh, there are more people in slavery today than any other time in human history. It's a $150 billion industry right now. 5.4 out of every 1,000 people on earth is a slave. That means over 40 million people are slaves as I'm preaching this sermon. And it can take labor trafficking or sex trafficking or child soldiers. It's all evil. In 1525 to 1866, during the New World moment, 12.5 million Africans were kidnapped and brought to the so-called New World at that exact same time in the opposite direction among Muslim countries. Between 12 and 15 million Africans were also kidnapped and sold into slaveries in that direction. And when John was receiving the book of Revelation as he was writing it, the city of Rome was made up of 50% of slaves. In other words, real simply, you know Babylon is present when human beings are viewed as property and what they produce is more important than themselves just being made in the image of God. Oh, the next is really at home for us right now. It's the love of violence 
as you read history and read these passages, every expression of Babylon has a hunger for violence, a love for war. It's not like literally what we're seeing now, Ukraine defending itself. There is a, you know, the beast is present when it loves to conquer. It loves to go and divide. And by the way, I encourage you, don't just read the history that you're familiar with. If you really take serious time to read global history, you'll begin to realize that almost every culture and every moment and every tribe in history has been involved in the conquering experience. Not just being conquered, doing the conquering. There's very little innocence throughout history. Well, the last two experiences of the beast are spiritual and religious. The first one is spiritual deception. Revelation 17, 8, the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was and now it's not and yet it will come. This is a total mockery of Jesus. Remember, the, the beast of the, the earth tries imitating the Holy Spirit, right? Oh, this beast was here. Oh, and then it wasn't here. Oh, and then it's coming back again. This is a total Jesus came and then he left and he ascended. He's gone for a period of time and then he comes back. Babylon is always around when false spirituality that appears Christian is around. Deception. Like I've shared time and time again, the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist can produce what appears the exact same effects. Looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, sings Bethel Hillsong and the Gaithers, goes to small group Bible studies, does miracles like Jesus, not Jesus. So they can appear and even sing great songs and have a Bible open, but spiritual warfare, like we've learned, is intellectual, emotional, and experiential. And to take it broader, Hindus can speak in tongues and so can Christians. What's the source? A genuine white witch could use their power to heal someone and so could a Christian, but the question is not the healing, but what's the source? And even deeper when it comes to deception, heresy in the church is real. Almost all false teachers don't know they're false teachers. Remember, I talked about this before. When we think about Christian false teachers, we all think like the Star Wars thing. They're like Sith Lords, right? And Palpatine looks so innocent and he, he's, he's just some guy, but behind he knows who he really... No, no, no. Understand this. Most wolves in sheep clothing think they're sheep, not wolves. They think they're doing humanity a favor. They think they're representing God well and they're not. It's deception. Like I've shared time and time again, there's always three ways deception and false teaching shows up in the church. False ideas about who God is and what he's done. False ideas of how to meet God and get salvation. And the big one that's really, preval uh, uh, really prevalent in, our, in the Canadian church is false ideas about how one, one gets to live after they meet God in a real and personal way through Jesus. Christian false teachers will teach you to violate, break, to change the ethical and doctrinal core of the Christian faith, still call it Christian, and say God's okay with it. It's deception. The, the last sign that Babylon is around is just pure idolatry, the worshiping of other things other than God. And remember, idolatry takes three forms. It's the secular version, I don't need God. And then every great religion on earth is idolatry because every religion, whether, whether it's monotheistic or not, basically teaches I connect with God by what I do. I connect with God by my activity, by my prayer life, by my giving, by me doing this ritual. Like All of that again is Babel, right? I ascend to the heavens by what I do, by my experiences, by my story. I define God. I'm okay with God by my actions. And the other form of idolatry is spirituality. I'm enlightened by my own story 
or by my own understanding. So here's the summary. Babylon is self-exalting humanity, unbiblical expressions of sensuality, the love and lust of luxury, the selling and exploitation of human beings, the love of war and violence, false versions of Christianity, religion and spirituality rooted in idolatry. So, hey, Sanctus Church, hey, anyone from another church, if you're not seeing it clearly, now see it clearly. We're living in Babylon now, right now. And if you haven't caught it, let me now connect another group of dots. In 2017 and 18, we did a series out of First Corinthians, actually two of them, called The Sent Ones and The Devoted Ones, on how to live well in a post-Christian, multicultural, pluralistic, highly sexualized urban environment for a reason. 2018, we did a series out of Daniel, who was living in, oh right, Babylon. In 2020, we did a series with Jonah going to Nineveh, another expression of Babylon. In 2021, we did a series out of Esther, living in a really dangerous moment, and now we're in Revelation. Why? Because every single one of these series are living examples of how to live in the beast, in Babylon, to endure and persevere in this moment without giving in. That's why we've been on this journey as a church since 2017. And by the way, each one of those series addresses at least one or many of the temptations above. This is actually us learning and being instructed and encouraged to work out Revelation 18. One fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Come out of her, my people, so you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. So if you're not seeing it, let me put it like this. There's no escape from Babylon. We're not called to live under it or escape from it or avoid it, but we're called to walk in our Babylon and walk in it well. But as we keep on walking, we're being reminded again and again and again and again in the book of Revelation, and as the world turns, and it's really scary right now, that Jesus has declared Babylon in all its forms doesn't have to last say, nor does that, that image of that woman on top of the beast. All of that's going to be destroyed. All of that's going to be broken. The whore, to use that graphic image, and her children will be no more. That's why Revelation 18.20 says this, Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she's opposed, uh, imposed on you. Oh, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Okay. That's a lot to take in. But, number one, be reminded, <laughs> hope is on the way. But again, as we're living between this first and second coming of Jesus, there's some stuff to honestly reflect on. First, it's for us just to be honest about what Babylon is and to make sure that we don't love any part of it. I was reflecting this week, and hopefully you'll do it this week in your own Walk with Jesus time or in your connect groups, but there better be a lot of mercy by God on Judgment Day for us. Like, as I look at my life, and I look at our church, and I look at every great move of God in history and read church history, I can't find a moment in church history where the church didn't love part of Babylon or the beast. 
sometimes greater moments, sometimes less, but like, you just saw the list and so did I. I mean, haven't you hugged the beast a little too much? Let me work it out like this. What God's word has just done for us today is shown us that actually our cultural or political bias or the system that we like is actually not really comfortable with the kingdom of God. Let me do it like this. Many Christians that call for injustice to stop, amazingly, at the same time defend sexual sin and call it liberation. Many that fight for God-given understanding of intimacy and identity are just fine with other forms of injustice. In other words, it's like being a Christian who's pro-life and anti-immigrate at the same time, or being pro-choice as a Christian all the time, but fighting against human trafficking. Hey, everyone, here's what God says. It's all Babylon. You can't have it both ways. You just can't have it both ways. I love when Tim Keller talked about politics and money that I think brings this very thing home for us. He says, pure capitalism says all your money belongs to you. <laughs> uh, pure Marxism says all your money belongs to the state. Christianity says all your money belongs to, oh right, God. And we should be radically generous with it as Jesus was with his riches. Do you see the difference? Marxism in its extreme form in capitalism, both the beast, not Jesus. See, those seven markers are found on the left and are found on the right. And those seven markers are found in every culture. Oh, and by the way, and those seven markers are found probably in every human heart. The dragon and the whore keep producing political, military, social, sexual, religious, and spiritual constructs and worldviews that keep the whole world fighting against each other and at the same time allows the, the demonic, the dragon, to own everyone at once. And what he desperately wants for the church to do is to keep on thinking that the answer we have is just on the other side or it's over there or it's over there and we stop looking up to the Lamb. Now, what do we do with this? Well, all I can do is pray. A friend of mine wrote this prayer out of this section and I'm going to pray it and I'm, when I pray it, I'm going to mean it, <laughs> and I'm going to pray it slow, and I'd love you to pray it, or if you can't pray it, I'd like you to go back later this week and pray it, because only when the Holy Spirit begins to personally and corporately reveal where some of the stuff is, can we even be free, because the reality is many, 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 many of us as Christians are near blind, and we don't think we are. So why don't you just posture yourself, and we're going to pray like this. Living God... Thank you for this literary triumph of imaginative power. And thank you today for breaking through with the truth. Oh Lord, have mercy. Please open our eyes. Don't let us be blinded by the seductive power and pleasure. Would you actually this week show us where we are in bed with Babylon? Show us where we're cooperating with Babylon. Where some of us may, might even be supporting it. And here's the great prayer. And grant us uncommon courage to obey your commands to come out so we may be a source of truth in our city. In Jesus' name. Are we all said together? Yeah, amen. Take time with this this week. Don't run quickly. I know there's a lot going on in world events, but don't miss this moment. And next week, 
as you join us. We're going to talk about the end of Satan, which is going to be awesome. The end of this stuff, which is going to be awesome. But also we're going to have one last conversation about judgment, which is going to be difficult, but encouraging in the end. Look forward to seeing you next week.